Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. If we think about all the way back to early February, Tesla announced that the company was investing $1.5 billion in Bitcoin. It's on the balance sheet. And also said it was going to accept Bitcoin as a form of payment for its cars. But last night in a tweet, Elon Musk made a major U-turn saying that Tesla has suspended vehicle purchases using Bitcoin. And that's just three months after that uh, head-scratching move. So really strange here. Let's get some color on this. We turn to one of the experts on all things Tesla, and that's Dan Ives, Managing Director, uh, Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. Dan, what do you make of Mr. Musk's kind of surprise tweet last night? It's a head-scratcher. I mean, the U-turn in the matter of three months, it's it's caught crypto investors and Tesla investors off guard because nothing's changed in terms of the nature of mining crypto right. in the last three months. Right. Like, presumably, Elon Musk knew going into it what the potential environmental effects of crypto mining would be, right? It's like me going into a pizza place, ordering a slice and being surprised there's sauce and cheese. <laughs> on, on, and, and I think that's the frustration. And also from one of the biggest proponents of crypto. And, and that's why, you know, Tesla, it doesn't really dramatically change the Tesla story from a transaction perspective. But in terms of crypto, you know, this is, it's been a U-turn. And I think many investors feel like carpet was sort of pulled out from under them. Yeah, that's kind of, you know, if I'm a Tesla investor, I'm used to a certain level of volatility. I'm used to a certain level of Elon Musk risk in my investment. And, you know, whether it's a, a an odd tweet here or there, I, I take that because of the tremendous upside I see in maybe the EV market. That's the, the bargain I've made. But now these stocks are under pressure, Dan. I know you've talked about it with us before. You know, the trade has been the kind of let's let's invest in some of these um you know, rotation names, uh, cyclical names, and that's not certainly the uh, the Amazons or the Teslas of the world. How do you view the, as you talk to investors today, how do you view the Tesla story here? You hit on a great point because this is not what we were, were six months ago. And so, you know, investors are frustrated. You're seeing risk off, multiples, inflation worries. So right now, investors, they're focused on deliveries and focused on fundamental performance. So patience is wearing thin, especially when it comes to Tesla investors that don't want to see the sort of sideshow on, off, on, off when it comes to Bitcoin. And I think what it's doing is really just adding to the volatility and some of the risk around Tesla that's now been brought in from doing a 180 in three months. Right. Where Remember, they haven't even had a car that's been transactioned in Bitcoin yet. Very fair point. It just continues to be, um, you know, one of the more head-scratching moves that, that I've seen, even in covering Musk for all these years. But covering it as an analyst, looking at it from a fundamental perspective, in the most recent quarter, Tesla did reap a pretty decent windfall from selling Bitcoin. And it also has continually reaped the reward of carbon credits, the company profiting from those. And those aren't necessarily going to last forever. What happens if both of those things go away? Well, from a carbon credit perspective, I mean, that that's still a tail and that that's going to last for another 18, 24 months. And ultimately, in a Biden green tide away, that could be more of an accelerant. But but no doubt, 
I mean, there's more and more pressure on them to just make more money selling cars. Remember, they sold more. You look on their Bitcoin profit; it was more than they did in all EV profit. You know, last year. So, you know, you're starting to see now, especially in China, especially on EV globally, you know, more focus on Tesla, even despite chip shortage, really accelerating on the EV delivery side. And you've seen a stock that's a glass half empty. Or stock that was up 700% a year ago. And and now, you know, right now it's a risk-off market, and investors want to see fundamental performance, not noise in terms of what they're seeing with this on-off on Bitcoin. That ultimately just really puts a little bit of an overhang around the story. Real quickly, Dan, when will the company be profitable on a per-unit basis manufacturing? A lot of that depends on China. Okay. I mean, China is the key, you know, as we look out into the next year where they could start to turn more profitable on just on a standalone basis. And as you talk about from an EV credit, that's going to continue to be there. But especially as we go into the next six to 12 months, more and more of a laser focus on profitability when it comes to the standalone EV business. All right, Dan, thanks very much for joining us. We always Thank appreciate you. getting your perspective, your thoughts on all things Tesla and Elon Musk. Dan Ives, Managing Director, uh, Equity Research Analyst at Wedbush Securities. And, you know, as Dan was just suggesting, you know, investors obviously don't like uncertainty. Um, and you get a lot of uncertainty with Elon Musk. And this is just another reminder here for some of the risks that uh, Tesla investors uh, have to get used to. Well, Paul, just about 24 hours ago, there was a pretty important meeting going on in the Oval Office at the White House. President Biden having his first face-to-face -face meeting with congressional Republicans, trying to bring them around the table on his long-term economic plan. And coming out of that meeting, Republicans did say, you know, it was good. There are places where we can find bipartisanship on infrastructure spending, but the red line yep. <laughs> is going to be the taxes. So let's get more on taxes right now. Kate Barton, Global Vice Chair of Tax at EY, joins us now to discuss. Kate, I am sure you have poured over every detail of what the president has proposed. What part of it to you could be the most damaging? Well, there's a lot in both of the plans, the American Jobs Plan and the America's Family Plan. And you're right, we are looking at them. We would like more information, um, our clients would. And so there's a lot here. I mean, you know, on its face, on the corporate side, tax rates going from 21 to 28. But on the individual side, there's also some significant changes, um, not the least of which is the capital gains rate change, which really has a big impact on businesses as well as where where um, individuals will invest their capital. And so those are some of the highlights. All of that is really important in the days ahead. And probably one of the biggest aspects is the um, relationship that the U.S. Um, uh, Treasury will have with the OECD efforts and the connection to the global side. Um, so that's a big change in administration. So that we're watching like crazy as well. So, Kate, let's talk about the capital gains tax specifically. What have we seen historically as maybe rates go up versus rates go down? Do we see capital formation or capital investment materially change uh, as capital gains rates are, in fact, moved up and down? We do see that having a big impact. And so historically, rates, capital gain rates have been kept lower because it's really thought by most leading economists to encourage more investment and more efficient in investment. So 
higher capital gains rates increase the cost of capital. And typically what we've seen from economic studies is that it can cause the holder to hold on to the investment for longer. So they'll just wait, you know, wait it out, if you will, for the rates to change or for a sunnier day. And so, um, you know, that can be less efficient, quite frankly, over the longer term or even the midterm. Kate, if I'm one of your clients and I'm staring down the barrel of a higher capital gains tax or a higher corporate tax, what do you tell me to do to protect myself against that now? Well, there's a lot to this. I mean, so, you know, the headline rates are not about what it's, you know, it's, it's actually what you pay. So, you know, you really do need to get into the detail and we actually do need more detail. So what we're really saying is stay calm, uh, model it up. And so there'll be more coming out. We're waiting for Treasury to release the green books, which should come out at the end of May. And so we'll have more details then. And then we've got to see how the legislation takes form. But I think the the companies really are modeling um, this all out, particularly the multinationals trying to figure out how their tax rate will go up and what can they do now to, um, to plan against that. On the individual side, I think everyone is holding and waiting to see what will happen. Remember, this is legislation that's got to come in to pay for all the infrastructure spending that um, the president wants to do. And it's really just the beginning of a negotiation. And so you don't want to act prematurely because there's still a lot of steps that have to happen before this becomes legislation. Kate, a lot of folks that are opposed to raising taxes um, just say, hey, if the IRS would just collect what's out there and close loopholes, that that would raise a tremendous amount of money. What's your view on just kind of, again, some of the, I guess for lack of a better term, loopholes in the current tax system? Well, from a perspective, enforcement's important. I mean, I don't think there's a country around the world right now that's not focused on making sure that the tax laws they have on the books right now are actually being enforced and paid. In the U.S., we've certainly heard a lot about that. So, so, close, you know, making sure everybody's paying their taxes is, is important. And, and part of the plan, too, is to beef up this aspect of the IRS so that they would get more resources focused on enforcement, focused on corporations or businesses that um, or high net worth individuals that are not paying uh, their fair share of tax. So, so that is, an, an, you know, a necessity. And the U.S. isn't the only country that's going to be doing that. So, um, so that's important. Uh, but it's not going to be enough to, to really, if the plan is to pay for uh, the spending, then um, other things are going to have to happen as well. All right, Kate, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting uh, your perspective, your global perspective. Kate Barton, Global Vice Chair of Tax at ENY. Um, again, taxes are on the table. The question is, what can get done politically? And, uh, you know, I, as you mentioned, Kaylee, the, um, the Republicans said we are not going to reopen the 2017 tax uh, law. So that's feels like a red line. <laughs> it does feel like a red line. And it's not just the Republicans. You have moderate Democrats as well. Joe Manchin of West Virginia is not on board with a 28% corporate tax rate. So President Biden has some work to do on both sides of the aisle, Paul. Absolutely. In Bloomberg News, we will be following that up closely, of course, as it impacts corporations uh, and individuals. Lots going on on market, Kaylee. Uh, snap back in the market today, you know, after the two-day sell-off, it's kind of, I guess it's a good sign. Um, you know, some people saying, hey, 
interest rates, maybe inflation, not that big of a deal. But all right, let's bring in Sean O'Hara. He's a president of Pacer ETFs. Sean, thanks so much for joining us here. Katie and I were just kind of going back and forth with a you know bull bear scenario uh, as it relates to this market. Uh, is the bull market still very much intact or are there some concerns coming in here about inflation, about maybe the Fed may need to taper and or tighten? What's your view? Oh, thanks for having me. Good morning. Um, I think, you know, I think what's going on right now is the market is, you know, is further ahead of its current earnings than it would normally be. And so we need sort of a perfect reopening in order for earnings to continue to accelerate to justify these equity valuation levels. And any little crack, in, if you will, in that facade of it's going to be perfect and everything's going to be fine, uh, potentially threatens uh, the market's value valuations in the short run. And so what feeds into that is the supply chain issues. You know, we had the Colonial Pipeline thing. You've got the chip shortage. You've got lumber prices skyrocketing. Um, and it was all sort of, you know, I guess highlighted by yesterday's CPI number, which, you know, the Fed tells us is transitory. Um, I'm not sure what transitory means or how long transitory lasts, but when you have a market this extended, and particularly on the growth names, where in a rise in inflation and a corresponding rise in interest rates potentially threatens their future earnings, then I think we need to start to discount those levels a little bit. And so I think that's the battle that's going on. It's, it's no different than the battle that's been going on all year as it relates to inflation right. and interest rates versus growth stocks. So yesterday was just a bit more severe, and we're seeing a nice bounce back here. Um, but there are places in this market that, you know, that are not overvalued that you can do well with. You know, we have a strategy at Pacer, for example, that's 100 large-cap stocks. We, we label it a value strategy, but it's not traditional value. We don't use price-to-book. We use free cash flow yield. And in this environment, that funds up like 25% year-to-date. Interesting. Um, it's not the traditional names that everybody knows. We're overweight tech, but we're not overweight the big social media tech names. We're overweight names like Intel and IBM. We're overweight the consumer. You know, the only real number that's better currently today than it was going into 2020, besides stock prices, which are way ahead of where they were, even though earnings aren't back there, is consumer spending. And so this consumer has a lot of money in their pocket. Um, they do. And, you know, I never, I never bought the argument that they were going to buy stocks in Bitcoin. I always thought they'd just start to spend it on <laughs> really the stimmies. You didn't think the, the stimmies yeah. were at play in the whole GameStop phenomenon? Yeah, not really. I mean, I think there's probably some of that, but I think you know people have been locked up and they want to spend the money and go do things and have some fun, and so. Right. Um, you know, we're overweight consumer discretionary, which is a great place to be because of that uh, that uh, that underlying, if you but will, Sean, um, tailwind. And of course, consumers going out and spending more money feeds back into that inflation conversation. How do you hedge against that? How is that showing up in the ETF world? Well, I mean, I think the way people traditionally would hedge against that would be to use uh, commodities, although commodities are fairly difficult to own. Um, in you know in a traditional ETF because you you know like oil for example you can't own in an ETF because you can't get to you, you own oil futures as the underlying and that's got but how you could know, you maybe play the the uh, the boom we are seeing in commodities through an ETF what you know what's the side play there I think it's the producers perhaps is the best way to to, to play that you know the miners is an example if you wanted to you know move away from gold or oil, or, or just by, you know, XLE, which is the energy producers. I mean, financials and energy have been on the tear so far this year, um, up like 24, 25% as well. And so, you know, if you're worried about inflation, you know, then the, 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 the producer of those commodities is a way to play it, 
you're not getting pure exposure, but it's very difficult for people to get pure exposure to commodities outside of gold, which you could buy like via GLD, where you actually have physical behind you. What's one of the mo uh, some of the or one of the more popular ETFs that you're seeing in the market right now? Well, I mean, from our perspective, just sort of broad labeling, if you will, high yield. We have a strategy that you know moves between high yield and treasuries. It's been a great product for us, not only in performance, but also in terms of inflow. And so as the investors are looking for yield in this environment where there isn't any, um, you know, where the 10-year treasury is at 160-ish, you know, bouncing around a little bit. And even corporate bond funds are at like 160-ish, right. which is kind of ironic. <laughs> um, you know, anything right. that has an attractive yield to it is attractive in this market. And I see you're starting to see flows there. All right. And I think you're starting to see flows to lower PE, higher quality names as okay. people start to de-risk their portfolio. Hey, Sean, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Sean O'Hara, president, Pacer ETFs, giving us his view on the markets and the ETF space. We'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. Paul, we've been talking about how people are starting to take their vacation days. Summertime is yeah. coming, and I think a lot of people might be spending some time by the pool this summer. And we're going to talk to a guy that knows a lot about that, Kevin Holler, and he is Hayward CEO. It is a leading global manufacturer of both residential and commercial pool and spa equipment. Kevin, great to talk to you. I am looking forward to summertime. But first, <laughs> I need to get your take on something I've heard a lot about in the past 24 hours. Forget about a gasoline shortage. There is a serious chlorine shortage out there. What's going on? Yeah, there's uh, uh, good to be with you th this morning, Kaylee and, and Paul. Uh, there is uh, a chlorine shortage out there resulting from Hurricane Laura uh, late last summer. Uh, but Hayward, we're actually part of the solution. We have alternatives. We actually make a more natural form of, of chlorine, salt chlorine generation. Um, and we have inventory available. We moved very quickly to uh, to try and provide solutions. We also have some UV and some ozone product, which when paired with any form of, of chlorine can actually reduce your need by up to 50%. So there is a shortage out there, but at Hayward, we're trying to be part of the solution and, and get people in the pools this summertime. Kevin, give us a sense of how your business was impacted by the pandemic. Did people build more pools? Did they use their pools more often? Was there increased demand for your products and services? Give us a sense. Yes to all three, Paul. Um, you know, I'd say the pandemic really became an advertisement for a trend that was already in existence for five or eight years leading uh, up to, to COVID. Uh, people were looking to get in their pools earlier last year. Uh, people started building pools uh, more, more frequently. And so what, what we saw was... Um, you know, the strength of, of our business is really 75% aftermarket. So we benefit greatly from the new construction that's going on. But that's really just adding to the installed base, which creates this annuity-like revenue stream for us as folks, you know, use their, their pools more often. The other thing that we really saw was people were starting to upgrade their pool pads. So the equipment needed, they started bringing in some, some more comfort uh, products like salt chlorine generation or automation controls or heaters, for example, to extend mm. their pool season, open it up sooner, and be able to swim later into the season. But Kevin, to what extent was that demand pulled forward by the pandemic? How sticky is that? Do you expect it to continue once we kind of reemerge from this? I absolutely do. I think that, again, the trend was there prior and it's going to continue. People have been investing in outdoor living for, for, for years. The pool is the centerpiece of that out. 
uh, uh, backyard investment. And uh, this is this is an amenity that we're seeing the boomers invest in. This is uh, an amenity that we see the uh, the millennials looking to add uh, to their homes. So, again, with the migration uh, uh, out of the cities uh, uh, and into warmer climates, this is going to be, be a trend that's going to continue uh, for years to come. All right. Fascinating story. We really appreciate you taking the time there, Kevin. Kevin Holleran, president and CEO of Hayward uh, Industries, just with uh, people using their pools a little bit more. Oh, yeah. I wish I was one of them. I really do. Yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, it, I think as Kevin was suggesting, um, the pool is, you know, people are spending more and more time outdoors, and that's likely to be a longer-term uh, issue, and more and more people leaving the city for the suburbs. And one of the things they really are leaving for is outdoor space and outdoor living. 100%. I mean, that's what I lack here in the city and why I do not have a swimming pool that I have access to. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.